mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Today we will be discussing chapters 47 and 48. We start right where we left off, in the carriage with the gardeners and Lizzie. The three of them are going around and around, rehashing the situation, debating whether or not to be hopeful about Lydia's fate. They discuss Wickham's character and Lydia's, and what kind of risk Wickham would be taking by kidnapping her with no intention to marry. My favorite part is when Lizzie reasons that Wickham clearly could not have fallen in love with Lydia because there's nothing attractive in Lydia beyond youth, health, and good humor. Brutal. And also three words that aptly describe Lizzie and her own appeal to Mr. Darcy. Despite Lizzie's harsh read on Lydia, Lizzie also says with tears in her eyes, she is very young. She has never been taught to think on serious subjects. Education is still very much at the heart of this story. When the carriage arrives at Longbourn, the little gardeners are happy to see their parents. Jane is happy to see Lizzie, and Mrs. Bennet is happy to see her brother. Mrs. Bennet has confined herself to her room in a state of nerves and grief. She is beside herself with worry for Lydia but also for the whole family. But it's a different angle of worry than we've heard so far. She's worried Mr. Bennett will die in a duel with Wickham. And then she catastrophizes, they will be kicked out of Longbourn by the Collinses and the whole family will be homeless. When Lizzie and Jane finally get a moment alone, Jane shows Lizzie the letter that Lydia left Mrs. Forster. It is clear that Lydia thought that she and Wickham were heading to get married and would be back soon. It's also clear how young these two confidants were. Lydia's letter to Mrs. Forster reads like two teenagers chatting, and yet one was supposed to be the chaperone. So here's Professor Jenny Davidson on what this dynamic between Mrs. Forster and Lydia shows us. Many different kinds of commentators have been pointing out that if you literalize and put into words rules about propriety and decorum and so forth, you will end up with some very illogical consequences. So as to say, if you take the letter rather than the spirit 
of the of the rules about propriety, this is exactly what will happen. When you first begin to codify rules, yes, a married woman should be the chaperone because she will be more experienced and she will understand all sorts more things about the world and so forth. But once that degrades into a just literal requirement that it be a married woman who can be the, the sponsor and chaperone. We see it again late in the novel when Lydia is gloating about the fact that she takes precedence over her sisters now that she's a married woman. And the novel sympathetically shows us Jane and Elizabeth just being like, what? Like, everything about it is so preposterous to them. So I think Austen is at once very committed to the idea that the proprieties are not just meaningless and silly, that they are really based on real goods, that we should care about reputation, that it's not just, you know. So Austin is committed to what lower C conservative position, that those things matter, that propriety and reputation matters. But she's also very aware that many of these rules, once you put them into words, can just be very easily manipulated, or you pay attention to the letter, but you have lost the spirit. Austin is holding Lydia to account, but she does seem to see the cultural, social, and parental forces that are to blame here, too. In Chapter 48, we find out that the gossip about Wickham and what has happened to Lydia is everywhere. Lady Lucas keeps stopping by, quote-unquote, concerned. Mrs. Bennet's sister, too. The whole neighborhood is suddenly telling the Bennets how awful Wickham always was, how they were always suspicious of him, and news of his debts are now being spread. Mr. Gardner learns that Wickham owes over a thousand pounds in Brighton alone from gambling. Remember, Mr. Bennet's annual salary as a gentleman is two thousand pounds. The gardeners head home to London and promise that they'll send Mr. Bennett back to Longbourn. Mr. Gardner, along with Colonel Forster, will keep up the hunt for Lydia and Wickham. Each day at Longbourn is filled with anxiety while everyone hopes for news. Jane is instructed to open every letter that is addressed to Mr. Bennett while he's away, in case something important comes, which is how she and Lizzie come to read a letter from our favorite correspondent, Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins has learned about Lydia, and, gracious as always, he extends his condolences and says that it would be better if Lydia were to be dead. Thank God he didn't marry Lizzie, or this would be his problem. And of course, he told everybody about what's happened, including Lady Catherine. Finally, Mr. Bennett comes home from London. He makes a joke about being sorry that he hadn't listened to Lizzie, but promises not to beat himself up about it for too long. Here is Roxanne Eberly on Mr. Bennett's flaws as a parent. Yes, I think the novel critiques the carelessness of the Bennets. The Bennets are careless as parents. This is really the problem right from the beginning because Mr. Bennett squanders money. He could have been putting away, we're told, money to take care of his children, but he, I think a lot of critics align Lydia and Mrs. Bennett, and yet Lydia also shares kind of the carelessness of Mr. Bennett. He doesn't want to think about his errors. He doesn't want to confine his pleasures. They're both quite selfish uh, parents who do not prepare their daughters 
for a world where they're going to be vulnerable. I, I really think this is a novel that's really about the complexities and difficulties of being a woman in the 19th century. There are just no easy representations or easy villains or easy models of education. The chapter ends with Mr. Bennett joking that he's learned his lesson and will do better going forward. Kitty will never go outside again until she spends 10 minutes every day in a rational manner. Kitty, ever rational, bursts into tears. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, poor Lydia, still not found. Yeah, poor Lydia. But before we talk about Lydia, let's talk about whether Mrs. Bennett is just catastrophizing or not. And to discuss that, we need to understand duels. So by the Regency era, dueling was outlawed. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. We actually have data on duels that occurred between 1785 and 1845. And of course, this is not completest data, but it is estimated that at least a thousand duels occurred and that upward of 15% of them proved fatal. You might think, Wouldn't all duels be fatal? Isn't that the idea, to fight to the death? But no, the intention was not to kill someone. It was just to restore honor. However, let's sort of get into the class specifics and the protocols of dueling, because I think this is where Mrs. Bennett really has no idea what she's talking about. So dueling was pretty much reserved for nobility. You know, the upper, upper classes would still participate, but Mr. Bennett was definitely not in the dueling class. Also at this time, we think of dueling as sword fighting, but by the Regency era, people are using pistols. And in fact, there are specially crafted dueling pistols, pairs of them, which are made for noblemen. So, you know, it's one of these sort of class markers is that if you have dueling pistols, you're the class of person who will duel. Mr. Bennett is not the kind of man who would have said pistols. And again, like the point was not to shoot someone to death, but... To make a point. (laughs) But it's not like a street fight. There was a whole lengthy process that you would go through. First of all, and this again takes Mr. Bennett out of the running, you would never challenge a social inferior. And you also wouldn't challenge someone with a significant age difference. And we know Mr. Bennett was far, far older than Wickham. Probably 40 years old or something crazy. Right, I know. Uh, The wizened old age of younger than me and probably (laughs) about you. (laughs) So here's how it would work. It's not like you would just all of a sudden pull out your guns and there would be a ruckus in the street. There would be a warning issued. So Mr. Bennett could challenge Wickham, at which point Wickham could choose to apologize or accept the challenge. But then the next day, so there was a waiting period for cooling off, Mr. Bennett would have to send a friend called a second with a letter that formally issued the challenge. And at that point, Wickham could choose again to either apologize or to accept. If he accepted, 
He'd have to name the place and time, which was usually dawn the next day. And, you know, it was usually in some sort of secluded spot, like Putney Heath or Battersea Fields were really popular because the cops probably wouldn't catch you there at dawn. And then once you show up with your second and your pistol and your opponent shows up with his second and his pistol, a final opportunity for apologizing (laughs) would be offered. And then if Wickham still would not apologize, they would draw pistols and one single shot would be fired without the intention to kill. So imagining all of this, it is highly unlikely that Mr. Bennett was going to die in a duel. I think it is fascinating, the class aspect of this, that like essentially, if you are not the ultra wealthy, it's a pub brawl, right? Like it's fisticuffs in the street. But if you are wealthy enough, there is the idea that you might need to guard decorum with pistols, Absolutely. And even just sort of reading through the protocol, it kind of feels like the legal system, doesn't it? Yeah. And part of why people still dueled even once it was illegal was because the members of the court were peers of the nobility. And when something like this would happen, they would say, well, of course he had to defend his honor and let him off the hook, even if there had been a murder, (laughs) which had happened. And so, yes, the idea that there is a protocol for protecting one's honor if you're rich enough and for everyone else it's just duking it out till people pull you apart or or the cops come in. It's like everything, like everything in England, like everything in this era. It is a completely different system based on how much money you have. Well, and you're not just protecting your own honor, though, right? You're protecting the social customs and the mores of the time. There's a way that British women are treated and there's a way British gentlemen should treat those women. And when an individual peers honor is called into question you're questioning the whole fabric of our society so did people at the time know that like you didn't die from duels nowadays like was mrs bennett's assumption a fair one or did everyone know like we're not dueling anymore like we're not faxing anymore <laughs> I mean, I think that what it sort of reveals about Mrs. Bennett is that there's something aspirational about her imagining that her husband will duel, that it, she's assuming that he would perform as though he were part of the nobility. And as someone who's not part of a nobility, she's, you know, not exactly hip to the details here. Yeah. And so I think that that's a big part of this, that that she has sort of an urban myth of what dueling looks like and that yeah. she's assuming that it's relevant to her and her family because because of how, how fantastical her notions are of the class that she aspires to be a part of. Yeah. So you're positing that she is just catastrophizing when she says to her brother, oh, my God, I'm so scared. I'm worried about Lydia. I'm not just worried about Lydia. I'm worried that Mr. Bennett is going to get into a duel with Wickham and he's going to die. And then the Collinses are going to move in and I'm going to have to live with you. You think that she's just on a spiral of fear? Yes, but I think that we have to remember that fear is based on her having no agency, her reasonably fearing for her own homelessness and the homelessness of her children and her knowing that her husband's death, which could happen tomorrow or 10 years from now or who knows, is going to set off that set of events. And so I do think that that 
having that sort of original loss of agency in this situation and then losing all of the control around her favorite daughter, the one whose future I think she felt most in control of in some ways, the one who she related to and associated with, and now she's vanished and possibly lost forever. You know, on the one hand, I feel like Austin portrays her as completely ridiculous, right? This is like, she's the goose flapping her wings and just clucking at everyone from the comfort of her own sort of Scarlett O'Hara bed. That's sort of how I picture it, at least. But I also feel like I have some empathy for her. Yeah. I actually think that this is the chapter where all of the Bennets are being ridiculous except Lizzie. Mrs. Bennet is a goose flapping her wings. Kitty is sobbing. Mary is moralizing. Jane is like somehow still assuming good intentions and like kind of pearl clutching when she finds out that Wickham is a gambler. She's like, what? A gambler? Like, this guy is the worst. He has kidnapped your sister. He has lied about everyone. Like, when are you going to stop being shocked by how bad he is? And Mr. Bennett comes in and is like making jokes pretty quickly about everything that's happened. And Lizzie is just like this one reasonable person who is upset and is concerned and is action oriented and Am I Lizzie Bennett? Yes, I am. Am I the only reasonable person in a mad world? Sadly, Lauren, I'm the best we've got. But do we really think that Mary is ridiculous here? Or do we just think that Mary's performance of her Mariness is ridiculous? Where she says, unhappy as the event must be for Lydia, we may draw from it this useful lesson that the loss of virtue in a female is irretrievable and that one false step involves her in endless ruin. I mean, it is ridiculous that that is how society is structured. It is ridiculous that that's what the moral code is. But she is the person who is clearly elucidating what is at the crux of this entire tragedy. So I totally agree with you. I just also think that the inverse is that none of them are actually being that ridiculous, right? Like, Mrs. Bennett can't control what's happening and she is terrified and she is worrying about clothes, which is something I want to talk more about. But she's also like legitimately concerned about her husband and her daughter. And Mr. Bennett isn't communicating with her, which is maddening. And Mr. Bennett is admitting his faults. And yet what good is there in just like self-prostration, right? Like, and Jane, right? This is a loss of innocence story for Jane of like, what? Like, this guy who is likable is this bad. So I think that maybe maybe you're right that none of them are ridiculous, but they're all written for comedy. But Lizzie is not written for comedy in the same way. But I think all of their responses are reasonable. And, you know, Kitty is sobbing because Mr. Bennett says you're not going to be able to leave the house. And I think it's believable to watch your parents Be like, do you know what? We messed up here. The pendulum is going to swing entirely the other way now, kiddo. I'd be like, what the heck? I'd find that believable. I think even in Lydia's letter, it's written to be ridiculous. And yet what it reveals is just this incredibly sad fact that 
Clearly, she trusted someone. And clearly, she's a teenager. That's all that letter tells me. And there's, I think you're really right that there's this moment where this is as ridiculous as we've seen anyone and everyone. And it is also the darkest chapter in so many ways. Yeah. And it's beautiful because they're all in the house together, right? Like all the kids are by Mrs. Bennett's side. Jane is trying to respect Mary's studying and and Kitty's fragility and didn't want Lizzie to interrupt her trip, but just wanted her sister home. And then it's also tragic because they can't take care of each other because they're all different. And isn't this just like family systems, right? That like you put yourselves together because you love each other and you want to be physically together. But that doesn't mean that there's like mutual understanding and the ability to reach out across divides to one another. It's reminding me of when I was researching my book, One and Only, which in part is about family systems, talking to various psychologists about, you know, this longing to have siblings so you have shared memory and how there's actually no such thing as shared memory because everyone experiences a family in completely different ways. It's sort of this fiction that we long for, that there will be some consensus and that that consensus will support us. And yeah, I feel like Austin very astutely shows us how how ridiculous that is as well. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I know that you are a great lover of Mr. Bennett. Can you help me love his speech here? He comes home from London. He's tried. He's really tried to find Lydia. I believe that. And he says to Lizzie, I should have listened to you. You were right. And then here is the scene. You must not be too severe upon yourself, replied Elizabeth. And then Mr. Bennett replies, you may well warn me against such an evil. Human nature is so prone to fall into it. No, Lizzie, let me once in my life feel how much I have been to blame. I am not afraid of being overpowered by the impression. It will pass away soon enough. And part of me is like, he's making a joke of it to take care of Lizzie. And then the other part of me just believes him. 
that he will let it pass real soon and he's already making light of this. What do you make of this? It's funny. I read it so differently. I read it that this is a massive apology and a massive owning of himself. And even that line is owning himself, that he's saying, I know who I am and I know that it's not okay. So let's just all name it together. Like, I fucked up. I'm a bad dad. I don't sit with the things that are serious. Let me sit with this because we all know that I'm going to fuck up again. And I don't know if you've ever heard either of your parents ever fully own anything like that. (laughs) I know that I haven't. (laughs) I think that parents are not frequently prone to self-examination, apology, or even like having a dark sense of humor about their failings. And there's something about a father in this patriarchal society that we are examining, you know, as darkly as possible in this chapter, showing up and saying, this is on me and I'm sorry. And let's just all take the note about who I really am. And honestly, he does it with charm, which I know that that charm turns you off so much, but it is <laughs> it is part I of... I love charm. <laughs> I am, it is true that I am skeptical of charm in men. I love charming women. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I think I am also skeptical of charming men, but I think I thrill to them. And I think that because of that... The way that Mr. Bennett frames this is something that really appeals to me. I also think that there's a very sort of, it's a type of English wit that I love, this sort of like droll self-laceration that I've always found so appealing. It's also a little bit Jewish. It's just, (laughs) I don't know, this, this bit, it tickles me. I just, I think it's the last line that I would yell back, right? When he's, it'll pass away soon enough. I'm like, well, don't let it. You have more daughters to raise. Like, you're not done, dude. And you're right. And I wish that Lizzie said that to him. I wish that anyone said that to him. And that's part of the issue too, right? Is no one says a damn thing to anyone about anything. Kitty doesn't tell us that Lydia's run off. Jane and Lizzie don't say anything about Wickham being such a disaster. Mr. Bennett goes off and doesn't communicate nearly enough. Mrs. Bennett says everything, but does it hiding away in her bedroom and none of it is really the part that matters. All of this saying so much without saying anything. I just wish that it was a situation in which there was a plucky daughter who could say, no, not so fast, dad. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because this strikes me as true about family dynamics also. I find it irredeemable about Mr. Bennett that he makes this glib so fast. I feel like I needed a couple more sentences before the glibness, but I think that it is brilliantly observed by Austin, right? Families don't hold each other to account because you have to wake up and see each other tomorrow. And like you're you're sharing food. Do you really want to say shame on both of you? You were horrible parents and then have dinner with them. There's a reason that we don't talk about these things. And I think Austin is right. And the fact that Mary lectures constantly and moralizes to everyone but doesn't say a word to her dad is very telling, I think. While we're talking about moralizing, can we please talk about Collins's letter? It's my favorite. I read this chapter four (laughs) times to prepare today. And whenever the line, 
the death of your daughter would have been a blessing in comparison of this. I every time laughed out loud and texted Ariana. It's hilarious. But also he's a clergyman, which just made me think of all of the religious traditions where you do grieve someone as if they've died, if they have sinned in a certain way, right? You excommunicate them if you leave the Mormon faith you get mourned as if you have died. In Orthodox Jewish circles, there's at least a culture around like, you have sinned and left us in some ways, we will throw a shiva for you and it is if you have died. So it's just like within the realm, I don't think it's like necessarily something that I think of when it comes to like Church of England, right? Like the Church of England is so permissible in so many ways and was founded Except around girls and sex, right? Exactly. Like, it's always so fascinating what the third rail is for any faith. And it is almost always around girls and sex. And so, yeah, it, I just, I think that the line is so funny. And every time it tinged me with this, like, no, really, we do this. Like we say better that they would have died. And lest we think that he's saying it as a saying, he ends his letter saying, throw off your unworthy child from your affection forever. Like, don't even mourn this child with love. Like, stop loving your kid. That is what I am directing you to do as a man of the cloth. (laughs) Yeah, and it is wild, right? Because he is also writing this letter as a man of the cloth. And either he is forgetting that moral authority that he theoretically has, or he is claiming it and saying, like, this is how, from a religious point of view, you should handle the situation. And of course, it's being backed up by class, right? Because he's yeah. he's citing Lady Catherine as in agreement yeah. with everything that he's saying. So it's like the church and the bank agree. <laughs> This person (laughs) might as well be dead. And even if they're not, you should never love them again. Your 15-year-old daughter who believes that she was going to marry someone because you told her that that's what matters is getting married. So, Lauren, I have an observation. In this letter that we get to see from Lydia that she sent to Mrs. Forrester, she is like, hey, running off with Wickham. Also, there's a slit in my dress. And then Mrs. Bennett, when she's sending off Mr. Gardner to London to go look for Lydia, talks a lot about Lydia's clothes. She's like, okay, tell her we love her. She can have everything she wants. Also, tell her not to shop without me because I know where she can get the best clothes, right? It's like very, it's silly, right? She's like worried about life and death and yet is giving a lot of advice about clothes. And there's a lot of clothes shopping in Pride and Prejudice, right? There's the ugly bonnet. They're shopping for ribbons. There's all, all of this conversation around clothes. Is that tied to ridiculousness? I don't think it is because the opening of the whole novel, Lizzie is trimming a bonnet. But there does seem to be a skewing of more ridiculous women talking too much about clothes. Well, as you know, I have many thoughts about clothes. <laughs> as do I. <laughs> but I... I have thought so much about clothing and clothing and notions of class and acceptance that I even once wrote a book proposal that I did nothing with 
The best thing about it was the title, which was called Slouching Towards Bloomingdale's, (laughs) which was about class and Jewish assimilation and in part how it related to clothing. So my grandparents ran a women's clothing store in Fitchburg, Massachusetts called The Emily Shop. And clothing was so important to my grandparents. Everything had to be fastidious, up to the minute. It's how you presented yourself to the world because this was how people became American. This is how people rose in class. And, you know, I think that there is an element to Mrs. Bennett and Lydia in terms of who they are culturally, in terms of class aspirations, femininity, self-presentation, self-worth that is really tied to the performance that exists in costuming oneself and what those costumes represent. And so I think there's also a hopefulness in it that these ideas are caught up, this material culture is caught up, this femininity is caught up in the idea that progress is possible, that change is possible, that hope is possible. And I think it's something that while it's really silly in many ways, it's also very real, especially for women who are entirely judged based on how they look. It's interesting because it's a moniker within Austin for too ridiculous. And yet we know from Austin's letters that she would throw good money after bad, try to make a dress prettier. And she and, you know, she and Cassandra were writing letters to each other back and forth about their dresses. So it's not that Austin didn't love clothes, but she does seem to judge the people who love it too much. And it's a way to poke fun at women in a way that I find frustrating because I do find that if you have so little power in the world and clothing is one of the places that you can distinguish yourself at least a little bit because there were the right and wrong colors to wear for the right and wrong events. And if you were grieving and how far out from grieving you were, and if you were this age or that age, your dress was supposed to be this short or not, and your hair was supposed to be a certain way, like the the limitations for self-expression were so narrow that, you know, women seizing on them seems so reasonable to me. And I, I don't like how much Austin picks at it. And obviously, rich women get whatever they want. They right. get to wear whatever they want. I mean, I, I think of Anne of Green Gables and the puffed sleeves all the yeah, time. You know, know, this is an orphan's dream because she's an orphan. So I think that it is really this this sandwich of of gender and class and also the marriage market. Also, you know, right. what it means to make oneself survive is to be appealing enough to overcome one's own poverty and marry up. And that only happens if you look a certain way. So, Lauren, the last thing that I feel like we have to talk about is the power of gossip. I mean, what's so interesting, right? Lizzie asks Jane, is there any reason to hope that some of this was discussed not in front of the servants? And Jane is like, eek, no, you can't have expected us to keep this private, right? Like the walls have ears. We don't really know any of the servants. We don't go downstairs in Pride and Prejudice. And yet the servants are kind of spies. And You get the impression that that's how, like, Mrs. Lucas, Lady Lucas finds out, right? Like, how else would she have found out what was going on? 
And we know that Collins is gossiping with Lady Catherine and, you know, and Lizzie has this line of, oh, it's really nice the Lady Lucas is stopping by, but really you can't see too little of your neighbors when you're in the middle of a scandal like this. And it, I, I understand. I love gossip. And in a town like Meriden, I would be dining out on this for months. You know, it's like finally a scandal has come to town. And yet it is part of ruining a girl. The The gossip around town is not concern. No, the, the gossip around town is an opportunity for people to hold themselves above all of this. All these people who adored Wickham, who were saying, I always knew that he was a scamp. You know, it's that pleasure in throwing someone under the bus to elevate yourself. And it doesn't surprise anyone reading it, right? Because through the whole book, Austin has just threaded through idle chatter and always let us know that there's no such thing as idle chatter. And it's really interesting at this point where they actually can't find Lydia. So where information travels and how it travels is at this moment, a matter of life and death. And, you know, there's no Twitter. Rumors and gossip are simply the news source. This is how communication passes. This is how you find someone if your girl is lost. This is how you warn the neighbors about that guy who everyone was so taken with. And on the one hand, it all seems sort of gross and reprehensible. And on the other hand, what else do you do? And how else does anyone know anything? Yeah. And, you know, Jane and Lizzie are being self-reproaching for not having gossiped, right? They're like, we should have warned everybody that Wickham was a bad dude. We should have gossiped. And I say this a lot, but I mean it every time that it's called gossip when women do it. And it's called like military intel when men do it or news when men do it. And I think that Lizzie was respecting Darcy's wishes and was afraid that Georgiana would have been touched by scandal in sharing this information. But she had information, right? And in fact, Mr. Gardner writes to the family and to Lizzie saying, do you know any possibility of who Wickham might know? Because maybe you have received that gossip, right? They're they're hoping for gossip at this point. And so next week, the gossip will continue. And we're going to find out what happens with Lydia, huh? I mean, there's going to be a hero, Lauren. He's going to come in and he's going to save us all. Holding out for a hero. What a dish. So obviously, we've been thinking about young Lydia's age, which technically she's just past her 16th birthday, though I'm aware we've been referring to her as 15. She is just across the cusp. And thinking about her age, you know, I've really been wondering whether her affair with Wickham, frankly, should have been legal, despite whether society deemed it moral or not. And it's made us really curious about age of consent laws historically. So we saw an article in Smithsonian Magazine that caught our eye on the age of consent by Kimberly Hamlin, who's a professor of history and global and intercultural studies at Miami University and a frequent contributor to The Washington Post. 
and the author recently of Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner. She just seemed to be the perfect person to call. So let's get her on the phone. Hi, thank you for joining us. Hi, Lauren. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for calling. So, okay, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but my understanding is that English children during Austen's era needed permission to marry until they were 21. But if you had parental permission, a child could be married off at age seven. And a child could deny the marriage up until age 12. Any marriage after age 12 for girls and age 14 for boys was considered valid. That is more or less correct. And the important distinction to keep in mind is that there was two legal tracks, one for age of marriage and one for age of consent, both of which are confusing and to our modern ears, highly problematic. So in the the time of Pride and Prejudice, the age of sexual consent, the age at which a girl could legally consent, quote unquote, to having sex with a grown man was 12 or 10 in England and in the U.S. and in Delaware, it was seven. The reason it was 12 or 10 was that British lawmakers thought that was tied with the age of the onset of menstruation. So there's sort of three things to keep in mind. Onset of menstruation, sex, and marriage are kind of commingled in this discussion. So you could be married off as a premenstrual child, but as soon as you got your period in an average sense, and actually that's quite young, especially back then and even pretty young now. So at the, I'd say the earliest possible date that you could begin menstruating, the notion was, girl, you're ready to get down with a grown man and it's anybody's business. Correct. So the impetus for age of marriage and age of consent laws are different, though. Age of consent is tied more to the history of prostitution and concerns about prostitution. And the the reason that age of consent is low and that women reformers had to fight really hard to get the age of consent raised is because both British and American lawmakers were super resistant to the idea of, quote unquote, fallen women, or in the U.S. example, African-American women being able to charge white men with sexual assault. Got it. Well, that just put it in a very (laughs) neat, bone-chilling package. I mean, it's interesting because I think that, you know, I hear this and I think about how women have fought for so long to eliminate restrictions on their bodies. The notion of sort of a protective state telling us what to do with our own, especially reproductive organs, has been a really oppressive notion. But in this situation, it's women who actually fought for the protection. Correct. Some historians who look at age of consent, especially as reformers were demanding that it go maybe all the way to 18 or all the way to 21, some historians look back and say, whoa, now, you know, have we crossed the line into policing women's sexuality? Were lawmakers targeting lower class women, immigrant women for doing things that teenagers probably, you know, trans historically have done? So I think there's a question, like, at which point are we protecting? At which point are we policing? Can you tie that to age? I'm not sure, but that is certainly part of the debate. Can you situate historically for us the movement to raise 
the age of consent? And tell us a little bit who was participating in that and why. Yes. So when Lydia runs off with Wickham, it is all well and good, right? She is 15 or 16, far above the age of consent in England, which is 12 or 10. Fast forward um, to the 1870s, Josephine Butler is leading the campaign in England to abolish the Contagious Diseases Acts, which in a nutshell, the law of the land is that any woman within, I forget the exact perimeter, but any woman within X kilometers of a British military base could be arrested or brought in for being a prostitute. So this was like, who who decides, right? Is it a single woman walking? Is it a woman dressed away that a military officer doesn't like? So women can be brought off the streets, tested for sexually transmitted disease. If they have them, then they're more or less imprisoned at these hospitals. And, and so a woman named Josephine Butler is leading the charge to overturn these laws. Part of her effort also involves raising the age of consent. And she's continually like almost over the line, almost getting reforms passed. And then, oh, parliament dissolves or somebody resigns. And then she has to start all over again. So in the 1880s, 1885, she reaches out to this British journalist named William T. Steed. He's a journalist and editor at the Pall Mall Gazette. And she says, gosh, this is our last chance There's going to be changes in Parliament. We need to get our bill across the line. Can you do something to raise awareness about this? And he's kind of an iconoclast. And he says, sure. So he goes undercover in London's brothels. And he concocts this also problematic scheme to ostensibly buy a young virgin and sell her into prostitution. So he publishes this exploit in a series of articles called The Maiden, meaning Virgin, Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, where he's exposing how easy it is for London's husbands, fathers, barristers, ministers to pay top dollar to deflower young virgins. So this raises, obviously, huge alarm bells. And within a matter of months, the British Parliament raises the age of consent in England all the way to 16. So U.S. reformers see this and they think, well, we need to do this too. Our laws are based on British common law, state by state. They vary slightly, but they're 12, 10, or 7. We need to do this too. But in the U.S. context, it's a million times harder because you don't just go to parliament. You have to go state by state by state. And as I mentioned earlier, in the South, it's a whole different ballgame because Southern legislators refuse to allow any sort of protection for Black girls. And in the few instances where Southern states do agree to raise the age of consent, they include clauses that say, well, this only applies to white girls, or this only applies to girls who can, quote, prove they were already virgins, which obviously makes is impossible and nullifies the law. So women learn from this in the U.S. example that the only places they could raise the age of consent all the way to 18, which was their goal, were the states in which women had at least partial suffrage, Kansas, Wyoming, Colorado. It's really interesting. And just the progression of history, I find riveting. And I think that we so often think about this as societal discourse. It's about moralism. It's about, you know, it's about customs. It's about people being shocked by things. But it does sound in this situation that thinking broadly systemically is actually really thinking specifically legally. 
Yes. And I don't think that we identify that very often, how much there were laws in place. And, you know, thinking about the members of parliament who were benefiting from this law, I'm, I'm imagining post Steed's investigation, the reform popping up, who's going to say no to that? It's basically saying, I need to protect my own <laughs> interests as someone who wants to sleep with, you know, young women. Young virgins. It's wild to think about what isn't simply cultural here, but what is, you know, literal policy. I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> One of the things that I've been really hung up on is that the only way to provide Lydia with some sort of safety and clean record and, you know, the closest she's going to get to a happy ending is that she marries Wickham, which to me is it's it's a life sentence. And I wonder how much that actually played out legally as well. You know, when an older man with a younger woman actually would come up against the brunt of the law, what sort of punishment would there be? And what was really the intention behind carrying out the law, whether it was at a younger age of consent or an older one? That's a great question. So almost no one was brought to trial for violating age of consent laws. And in the U.S. context, if they were, they were not white. Estelle Friedman has written extensively about how a really defining feature of the U.S. legal system is the racialization of rape. In the U.K. context, that's not as much the case, but it is the case that it's very rare for someone in the 19th century to be brought up on charges of violating age of consent. It was more, I think, about sending a message, right? More like the symbolism of the law. But to your point of what options did people have, what option might have Lydia had, I think in far too many instances, marriage was seen as the fix. Oh, young Susie, young Lydia has had premarital sex with this awful guy. What should we do? Oh, well, the only solution is to have them get married. Like, what? <laughs> This poor girl or teenager has had sex consensually or non-consensually with this person, and now we're going to force them to get married because we're more concerned with the fear that people will think she's had premarital sex. So somehow the the thing that makes it right is marriage, which to our modern ears is you know rightfully horrifying. But that was often how this would be worked out. Do you have a sense of why... You know, one thing that we've talked about is how progress has not been linear for probably anyone, but especially women. And we have now seen through periods of history that things can swing back. And of course, this period of time, you know, we're, we're entering the Victorian age. In the years that follow this book, there's a real swing towards repression once again. Do you have a sense of basically how and why there is not just so much anxiety about women and sex and freedom, but why it just keeps ricocheting back and forth? This is a massive question, but one that I have a feeling you might have an answer to. The the short answer to your massive question, I think, is that bodily autonomy and political autonomy are two sides of the same coin. Women have always known you can't have one without the other, and women have always been fighting for both, even when we only say one of them out loud. <laughs> so, for example, I see the 19th century women's rights movement in large part as a movement for bodily autonomy. And I see attacks against bodily autonomy, and especially the moments when they bubble up as 
backlashes against women's increasing autonomy, either economically and or politically. So I think that's why the pendulum goes back and forth. I I think, you know, if we were to think about other Victorian era laws, like Comstock laws in the U.S., for example, I see those as attacks against women's growing political autonomy, or at least demands for political autonomy. And of course, you've written about how the fight to raise the age of consent was what sort of laid groundwork for the suffrage movement. Exactly. In tangible and intangible ways. In tangible ways, this is where women learned how to legislate. The age of consent campaigns in the 1890s in the U.S. was the first large-scale legislative and lobbying undertaking that women reformers had really ever done. And they did so successfully in most cases, except for in the South. And this is where they learned, you know, how a bill becomes a law, how you get things done at the state house, which is lessons that they then used to get the 19th Amendment ratified. And it also, in an intangible way, is what turned 200,000 women's Christian temperance union members into suffragists. So in 1890, The president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, Frances Willard, was a suffragist, but a lot of her membership thought, oh, that is a bridge too far. We're not sure about those suffrage ladies. And the suffrage ladies were like a super small, you know, in the thousands, super, super small minority. But the age of consent campaign is what showed these 200,000 middle class reformers like the lie of the idea that your husband votes with your best interest, your father votes with your best interest in mind. That is what they had been told, right? Oh, you don't need the vote. You know, the family, there's a family vote, your husband votes for you. So women in the US thought, oh, great, we'll just go and, you know, let the legislators know, because probably they must be unaware that girls of 10 and 12 are considered legally capable of consenting to sex, and we'll just get the laws changed. And what they encountered was the exact opposite. So that's what made them realize, oh, we do need the vote. And these men are not legislating with our best interests at heart. And the sort of cherry on the Sunday was the realization that the only places where they met their goal of raising the age of consent to 18 were the places, the states, I should say, where women already had at least partial suffrage. And here's one uh, final fun fact I will leave you with, and that's the very first piece of legislation ever introduced by a female legislator in the United States was Carrie Clyde Hawley, one of the first women elected to the state legislature in Colorado. It was her proposal to raise the age of sexual consent, which she introduced in 1895. Uh, Kimberly, it's so thrilling to talk to you about all of this. I just learned so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. Thank you so much to those of you who've joined our Patreon and it's how we exist. So thanks a lot, actually. Please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. It is how other people find us. And we, unlike Lydia and Wickham, want to be found. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Elise Kenagrotnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Real of Worcestershire Sauce, The Countess of Christian Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tierra Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Jenny Davidson, Roxanne Eberly, and Kimberly Hamlin for talking to us, to Laura Glass, Margaret H. Willison, AJ Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. 